All right, so 10 episodes in. This podcast launched just before we went into a lockdown. The lockdown meant that our offices in Auckland Park and Media 24 were locked up and we were locked out of the building. So that means that we couldn't function in the regular studio. I then took the podcast to my closet at home. That's where I'm speaking to you from. And then I work with my producer via virtual platforms. Noctula and I work far apart but together we are together from afar i don't know which way you want to look at it so it's been an interesting ride you know and a lot of the conversations we've had obviously have been very covid focused because a lot of things around corona understanding politics from that perspective understanding what leaders are seeing and that's kind of what's shaped the conversation i'm really grateful that uh people who have tuned into the podcast have been really good at communicating their views of the podcast i think that's our steam i think that's what keeps us going and keeps us rejuvenated and continuing in our work is that there are people who are listening there are people who enjoy it and who gain something from engaging it so this week the issue around the scientists the interesting thing for me is this Professor Glenda Gray is highly accomplished. And I think that when you make utterances the way that she did in the public domain, you've got to be able to remain forthright in your defense of those utterances. I have an issue with the way she responded to the minister's reaction. I have an issue with the idea that the minister slammed her. I have an issue with the idea that the minister and our government can't take criticism. They often are at fault, but in this case, I don't think it's that. I have an issue with hearing the minister say that people are asking, why did you appoint Professor Abdul Karim? Because that for me feels like the politics I'd play. And there's a really interesting piece by Becky Caesar that speaks about how highly competitive that space actually is between academics and, and scientists they're highly competitive because you know your your name will go up in lights your name goes up in lights you're exalted for years to come for the work you've done so for me it almost reminded me of how party politics systems work you know in the NC if you're not heard you go to the media but ultimately you're trying to lobby from the outside what must happen inside and I don't know if this is the right issue to be doing that with you know i think it's important to allow alternative views to be heard i think it is critical for the media to give them space but i also think that professor gray needed to pause and reflect slightly you know i like to argue to whom much is given much is expected i think that we are anxious and stressed and we don't know we are uncertain those who are trying to guide us need to be slightly less alarmist in how they're guiding us and how they're dealing with each other i also don't understand the pity party after the fact I don't understand it. And I also do get, by the way, Dr. Uh, Professor Gray, I do understand that you don't want many years after this for you to be said, to be asked rather, you were in the room, why did you not do anything? But your response to the minister is not in that spirit and that's kind of what lost me. If your response had been that your integrity and your name and your reputation matters and saving lives matter and, 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 and that's why you are doing what you're doing, I would accept so much more of what you've said and done than, oh, he's picking on me. I have a great challenge dealing with that. For me, um, yes, not only is it just politics, it's a jungle, hey? <laughs> 
it's actually a jungle in the medical fraternity and not because of a hunt down for a vaccine no in the battle between personalities and the clash between ideas and the power plays and the external lobbying internal lobbying i mean for it to spill over the way that it has in the public that's quite telling anyway to try and understand this to unpack it to get it a little bit better than what you know, I might do here in my lowly corner or in my lowly closet. I've invited Kaya Sitole. You might remember him from our very first episode. We spoke before the lockdown, imagining what it would be like. Well, he joins us now and we start off really at looking at what this all actually means and where we are today. Kaya, I'm now coming to you actually from my closet. Uh, I'm speaking to you via Zoom. Kaya Sitole, commentator, uh, some uh, he's also a media personality. I think we must call him that. Media personalities on the wireless. Kaya, you joining me now to speak about the lockdown. The last time you and I spoke, it was going into a lockdown. That thing has happened. We're way past fifty days into this abnormal way of living. How are you holding up, and what do you make of the lockdown? So yeah, as you said, the last time we met, it was in very different circumstances where human interactions and human mobility were still allowed. And since then, we've had to learn to live differently. And of course, the big idea was that if we reduce the human interaction, then if we reduce the mobility across boundary lines, across communities, we will at least reduce the spread of the infection of this particular virus. And obviously, over the past 50 days, that has been managed to some extent. Now, I think the interesting thing, of course, is a question of how long will this lockdown last? Because we still do not know. We now know that there are different levels to it. We are currently surviving under level four. And of course, it is now becoming quite clear that we do have hotspots in the country, which is a trend we've seen across the world. So places like Cape Town and places like New York tend to exhibit statistics that are quite different from their surrounding areas. And I think in the South African context, we're still struggling to really understand what the data from the Western Cape means, and more importantly, what the consequences are for the rest of the country. Let's actually speak about it now that you brought up Western Cape. I've spoken to the Premier of the Western Cape, Ellen Windy, and they put it down to the fact that they're testing correctly, testing at the right places. They can't win the argument of testing better because the numbers at a national level show a different uh, picture. They say Gauteng tests more, but they're saying they test correctly, that they're going to the mortuaries. Are you convinced that they are targeting the right places and the right people in testing versus everywhere else? What do you make of that argument? For me, this is a very difficult conversation because neither one of us are medical experts. So, of course, we are only observing what we are being fed as the data. We do not have the capacity or the wherewithal to immediately reject offhand what we see based on the fact that we do not have the skills to do so. But that being said, for me, Tidi, the main problem that I have with this particular question is that this was never a provincial issue. This was never a question of who governs where. The idea behind this national lockdown is that we're dealing with a national health crisis. So whatever the protocol or whatever the procedure is relating to testing people, identifying people, 
people, tracing people, and documenting people and their symptoms, if that's the case, should have been a universal model. It should have been a national model. So I get really worried when we then hear that one province says that they're doing things a bit differently because I do not understand the basis for this distinction between what one province does versus what the rest of the country is doing. So if that is the case, that is the first thing that we need to be able to understand is why such differences would exist and what it means for the bigger picture out there. Now, of course, now that we've been through this process for the better part of two months, it should be easy for the people in charge, the authorities that be, to then say, well, it looks like, for example, the Western Cape model of testing and tracing is the one that gives you much wider data sets. And if it, that turns out that we want to actually see what the prevalence and the spread of the infection is across the system, then we would be able to then say, let us adopt the Western Cape model, whatever that model looks like. Now, the fact that no one has come out and said, hey, wait a minute, that is the model that works, so therefore let us replicate it. Or more importantly, why would have had different models to begin with? It worries me because then we just simply do not understand what is at play here. And the secondary question is, if one province is in a position to then say, we are doing things better, we are doing things differently, it is in the interest of everyone and every other province to then say, we want to have as robust a data set as the Western Cape is able to generate. So therefore, let us find out what it is that they're doing differently and do the same thing. Because to then say, okay, we will persist with our model, whatever that model is, and of course, assuming that the Western Cape is correct mm -hmm. in saying that there's a difference between their model and everyone else's model. If that is the case, then we should be able to then say, guys, what is the national um, approach? What is the university? approach so at least we can have some consistency in the data so that for me has been the point of worry so I think that inability by the Ministry of Health or even the provincial ministers of health to explain to us exactly what the granular details are around what the Western Cape says is doing differently versus what everyone else is doing is a massive point of concern for me you know you say that we should have a universal model and I think on paper that sounds really great but the issue is the Western Cape is governed by a party different from the governing party in charge of national politics, or the nation rather. And in that, they can't seem to help but fall into the cracks of politics and competing with each other from that basis. I think you see that when the opposition party, the DA, which is the main opposition party, comes forward with alternative facts and alternative science uh, behind its different calls. I think we should reject that altogether because for me, it shouldn't even be part of the conversation that there are different political considerations because again, we are dealing with something that transcends political ideologies, political persuasions, and even the question of who governs where. Because this thing, this disease is unique in the fact that it doesn't respect boundaries. It should be completely irrelevant who is in charge of what and where. And unfortunately, in the South African context, given the fact that, oh dear God, it is ironic, isn't it? It, that the differences have then manifested across the political divide. It then means that yet again, we have two centers of power. We've got the Western Cape versus the rest of the country. We've got the DA controlled Western Cape versus the rest of the country, which is controlled by the ANC. So perhaps, and this is me being cynical, this conversation would have been much better if it had been any other province except the Western Cape, because then we could at least eliminate the input of the political issues around it. And right now we are stuck with the fact that we absolutely cannot detach 
the politics from the reality of the health question simply because of the pre-existing political dynamics. But unfortunately, it's not getting us anywhere. This question should not be framed around the question of who governs where. It should be around the question of what are we doing to contain the health crisis everywhere in the country, regardless of who's in charge. I think that's such an idealist perspective, but unfortunately, we are where we are. Dr. Zueli Nkiza, who leads health, versus Professor Glenda Gray uh, on what we are seeing in our hospitals, what is the right thing to do, is the government listening, not listening, the egos, the politics behind the scenes, finding their way into news headlines. What do we make of that situation? So I think um, the past couple of days, I've tried to stay away from the whole Glenda Gray conversation versus Dr. William Kizer conversation because I think what has become quite, quite difficult is that, again, um, alternative views must be welcome, particularly when we're dealing with something that none of us understand. Yeah. So alternative views must be welcome. But I think what unfortunately is a case when you're dealing with a healthcare crisis is that me listening to someone whose voice has got resonance and gravitas and them telling me that the state has got this completely wrong, they're only doing it out of a thumbsack. It's problematic because there are so many people who will then turn around and say, see, we told you that this government was engaging in things that they don't understand in order to achieve particular outcomes. Yes. So there is indeed a space for dissent and, and, and a space for having alternative views. But it's also important to be delicate about how you communicate those particular views, particularly when you have so many people who are already calling into question the very essence of what we are scared of. You see a lot of people come out and say, well, flu kills much many more people. TB kills many more people, HIV kills many more people, so therefore, wow, in this place in the first place. So I would have thought that somebody with the type of um, inst- well memory or insights that uh, Dr. Glenda Gray probably has would have been a bit more delicate in articulating what her views are. But I think the way it came out was her simply, or again, this is an interpretation of her simply saying that there's absolutely no science behind the process. It's just, you know, a group of mad politicians that have decided to lock up an entire country. And I think that's unfortunate fortunate because in articulating it that way, it then bolsters the parts of the conversation, the parts of the narrative that say, well, actually, the government has absolutely no idea what it is that it's doing. Again, as I think we've said this before, the problem with dealing with this particular crisis is that we don't know what the alternative is. So there isn't a placebo group of people who've been allowed to roam free where we can then say, well, look at what happens when people roam free. People die or people don't die. So we're just hoping that what we've done or adopted as an approach is the right one. But we're never going to be in a position to be able to do a comparative case study to say, oh, by the way, the Northern Cape, for example, did something completely different and these were the outcomes. So therefore, we were right or we were wrong. So it's very, very difficult at a stage like this to then have these types of very public displays of dissent, uh, public displays of conflict, because the consequence is that someone sitting there can now legitimately say, look, Glenda Gray is much more accomplished in the healthcare than Zanim Kiza, for example. Again, could be a matter of perception. So therefore, I'm going to go with what she says. She's told me that the government is smoking when they say I must stay at home, so therefore I'm not going to stay at home. She's told me that the government is smoking when they say I must do this or not do that, so therefore I'm going to reject all of that. What does it, where does it lead us to? The government is the one that has to deal with the fallout. 
I want to speak about an issue of goodwill. Uh, the last time you and I spoke, you spoke about how, you know, Ramaphosa, and we all know, the president, Cyril Ramaphosa, had squandered a lot of goodwill uh, over the years since coming into power. And then he gained a little bit of um, goodwill and confidence. People gained a lot of confidence in him at the start of this pandemic in South Africa. And that you can see, it's been tekatekering from time to time, shaking a little bit with people being frustrated with the protracted lockdown, the regulations that don't make sense. Your assessment of how he's kind of led us through this pandemic thus far? I think the issue around how the implementation of the lockdown was going to work out was always going to be a question of how effective the foot soldiers would be in executing their jobs. And of course, the foot soldiers here are the different ministries that are different, that are responsible for different parts of the lockdown. And from the start, you obviously saw that, again, everybody was learning through the process. There were a lot of clumsy steps, particularly in relation to the transport cluster, where Fugilam Balula quite simply did not, did not know what it is that he was doing. He was convening meetings when, when we had been explicitly told to stay away from mass gatherings. Mm. So you saw that. And I think over time, it sort of normalized where at least we knew what the basics and the guideline rules were. And that prevailed for a long time under the stage five lockdown before we started talking about doing things differently. Unfortunately, when we then started talking about things, doing things differently, then you saw again some of the foot soldiers quite simply not playing their part in that their ability to understand what needed to be done and more importantly to justify the regulations they formulated to justify the reasons for saying this can or cannot be done was completely missing and perhaps the worst performer in that regard would have been Ibrahim uh, Patel whose capacity to articulate exactly what his reasoning was behind the regulations that he put in place was completely foreign we had no idea what it inform this decision making and I think what that did is that it started then making a lot of people feel frustrate, frustrated because remember mm. the frustrations were building up from day one when suddenly my ability to decide what I'm doing for the next 24 hours of my life was curtailed by the fact that the state said, look, we need to manage something that nobody knows how to manage, so therefore we will indeed interfere. And they did legitimately interfere with our ability to decide what we do on a daily basis. There was nothing wrong with that, but of course it, it did make all of us anxious. What then made the situation a bit worse is when we then started feeling that actually some of the things that are forcing us to sort of concede to, some of the things they're forcing us to do are quite simply irrational. And that's when you then saw people starting to express their frustrations in multiple ways. And I think obviously that was to be expected. It's just simply a matter of the government could have managed it better by not exposing itself to what have turned out to be quite simply mm. irrational regulations every step of the way. I want to speak about education. This week, Mam Enji Mutecha, what a difficult briefing, what a difficult issue, whether or not kids should go back to school. They return starting off in June. It is incredibly tricky. What do you make of um, Angie Mutsecha? And when you hear her speak about the plans her ministry has about the way forward in schooling in a time of COVID. The whole point behind the lockdown was to enable us to build the capacity to deal with the infections that we knew were always going to rise, with the infections that we knew were always going to arrive. And it wasn't just the healthcare system that needed to be ready. It was also the places and indeed the 
institutions where we know that by design or you know function that's where a lot of people are going to be congregating and that's of course the risk of infection is going to escalate and obviously schools and even higher education institutions should have been part of that initial conversation to say if we are going to reopen at some point in time after a lockdown what should we be doing during a lockdown to ensure that whenever we then make the call to citizens to say please come back and start using this institution or this facility again people are at least able to objectively say this is what it looked like before a lockdown that's why you took us out this is what you've done in the interim and this is why we're comfortable or not comfortable going back to that system that's really for me what the lockdown was supposed to be all about mm. unfortunately when it comes to the education sector and particularly in basic education a lot of people are struggling to see that unique distinction between where we were and where we are and i think also the secondary matter is that for me, it's been clear for the past couple of weeks that you should focus on grade 12s and, um, and, and grade 7s, not because they're more important than others, yes. but because the question of whether they are still in the system um, longer than they should be has bigger implications for the new cohort of students. So if you keep grade sevens locked up, it means that next year's grade Rs or grade zeros that are trying to get into the system, into that school, limited capacity, it's got particular constraints. So those were always supposed to be the two focus groups, which is saying these are the people that we're only going to focus on. We're going to create whatever environment is necessary for every parent who has a grade 12 student to say, I'm very comfortable sending them back. I'm very comfortable taking them to school for every parenting who has a grade seven student to be able to say that again we are not at that stage because everybody says we're still concerned we still have no idea what has been put in place and why it has been put in place and what the implications are and the one thing TD, that i just have to say at the end is that remember the greatest limitation here is simply the question of the incubation period. So you are now talking today, we sound healthy, we believe we're healthy. I could have contracted the disease three or four days ago. I'm not showing the symptoms, so I don't know any better. So let's say we're opening up schools tomorrow. I could show you a hundred students that show absolutely no signs of any infection whatsoever, and we're all good only for us to discover next week that 20 of them already had infections. And the scary thing is that they could have passed on the infection without even being aware that they themselves are infected. So that remains the biggest problem. It's, it's, it's a very scary picture. But obviously, we must, we cannot, we can never leave the issue of economy out. I heard David Makura saying up to 2 million jobs could be shared in Gauteng. National level, about 7 million. How do you rebuild this economy? Do you do it by drawing back into South Africa? Do you draw into the continent? What is the best way and how much work needs to go into trying to rebuild? And we don't even know when. We don't know if it's going to be at the end of the year or 2022 or 2023. We actually have no idea when we can actually start the work of properly rebuilding and resuming what was once known as normal life, I suppose. You know, the great tragedy of this conversation is, unfortunately, we have to go and ask the question of what Donald Trump tried to do when he became the US president. And I think for him, the one thing that he kept talking about was the fact that um, a lot of what he referred to as American jobs had become offshore. They were being done away from American borders. And I think the relevance of that type of question today is to then say, what should the primary focus 
of a particular government being. Should your primary focus to say we are now uh, we have now survived the pandemic, let us then restore pre-existing trade relations. Because if you then do that, then there's a question of well, wherever you started, the situation is now worse. So if you had an unemployment rate of 30%, which is where we were close to, it will probably become worse. Then the question should be, do we then take the view of saying that we must internalize as much of our production and economic value chains as possible or simply then do what we were doing before? Because the consequence, uh, the, the, the consequence of answering that question in one way or another is quite profound. So before we went into the lockdown, we were importing chickens from Brazil, for example. We could still do that, but then the question that somebody would raise is to say, well, surely if we then say we have been cut off that particular supply chain, let us actually not restore it. Let us try and do things internally so that at least the next person can be able to access a job. Is that the type of thinking that you want to get into? It is remarkably difficult, of course, because some countries perhaps... Mm. not South Africa in particular, some countries are so highly dependent on the import value chain. So for them, that isn't even an option. They simply have to reopen the lines of trade that existed before. But I think for South Africans, we then have to consider the question of how much can we internalize now that this disruption has shown us that actually there is a way of doing things yes. differently. If we can internalize as much of what we used to import, then that will make a positive difference. But I think the question of what it takes to revive this economy is is something that absolutely nobody at this stage understands simply because again we could be having this conversation in three or four months time depending on what happens during when the lockdown phases depending on the spread of the disease so we could think that this is about to end but this is not guaranteed it could be going on for the rest of the year so i don't know that that's the problem and government you have to pray that somewhere along the line they are they're getting the right advice and getting the right inputs because it is completely difficult to predict. And they always say to whom much is given, much is expected. Kaya, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Social commentator, media practitioner, but an all-round smart guy. Always fascinating conversations with Kaya. That's it from us this week. Next week, we're bringing on board our editor-in-chief, Adrian Basson, to try and understand what it takes to steer our way through this mammoth beast called COVID-19. This podcast was produced by Noctila Magnati and my name is Tidi Madia.